Somebody once told me that they absolutely detested doing loving-kindness practice. Uh, I do hear that sometimes, but this was one particular occasion where this person likened it to an enforced continual Valentine's Day where one was uh, somehow compelled to get into a mood of, of kindness and care and sentimentality. And this, of course, is one of the great confusions about both the practice and the experience of metta or loving-kindness. I think, really, the experience of loving-kindness has less to do with a feeling or an emotion than it does to do with a vision. A vision, an understanding, a view, we would say, in Buddhist teaching, a view of interconnectedness, of wholeness, a sense of connected connection to all parts of ourselves, no part left out, and a connection to all of life, no part left out. One of my very favorite things to do, actually, when I'm teaching, when I'm sitting up in front of a room full of people, such as yourself, well, actually, I have two fantasies, one of which I disclosed to my groups today, which was... Uh, my first fantasy is to imagine what it would be like when somebody finally invents a machine that will actually amplify someone's thoughts. So that in this seeming sea of serenity in which we are sitting, there will be uh, an amplification of just one person. It would be a lot, wouldn't it? But my other favorite fantasy is to sit here and to think, how many of us are actually gathered here together at this point in time? Which is to say, how many people have each of us brought with us? Those who have influenced us in some way or inspired us to look more deeply, to care more fully, have helped us come to such a place. They've given us a book or they've talked about their own experience or something. And how many people have heard us in some way that have perhaps forced us to look more deeply and to try to find different kinds of answers to the dilemmas that we face in life. In some way, they are all here with us right now. And everybody who built this building and the people who have sustained it through all of these years and all of the meetings and meetings and meetings through 23 years of, of existence, that's all here too. For any one of us, there are just an enormous number of connections that we ourselves are bringing forth into this point in time into this place, this present moment. Somebody once asked me how I had gotten involved in a particular school of Tibetan Buddhist practice, and I thought about it and just began tracing back and tracing back all of those connections, or the ones that I could see, certainly not all of them. I thought about this time in 1971 when I was in India, And I had gone to visit a Tibetan teacher who asked me a question, 
that I didn't know the answer to, but the question somehow stayed with me and had something to do with my entering that school of Buddhism or coming to study in it so many years later. I thought about going to a conference with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala and engaging in a dialogue with him that also has something to do with my coming to practice in that school of Buddhism. But mostly I think about the fact that Joseph and I went to Russia one year to teach <clears throat> and we happened to arrive uh, in Russia on the eve of the coup attempt against Gorbachev. So our course got canceled and we had to leave. And that leaving, that abrupt and unexpected leaving, had me arrive in Paris at a time when I never thought I was going to be in Paris and I met my teacher there at that time. So sometimes I think about that and I think, well, could Gorbachev be part of the karmic stream of events that somehow brought me to practice in that school of, of Buddhism? And I think, well, maybe. I actually believe that if we got quiet enough and open enough and aware enough, we would see the whole universe gathered in this room, in this point in time we would see a vast, vast web of interconnected links that is life with nothing and no one left out. That's the vision of loving-kindness. That is loving-kindness. It's that knowing that whether we like one another or not, whether we resent one another or not, whether we notice one another or not, we are, in fact, all part of a whole. We are connected very deeply. And we see this over and over again. There's a story that's told about uh, a monk in the Buddhist time who said, it said that the monk, before he ordained, came from a very wealthy aristocratic family. Then when he ordained his fellow monks used to tease him a lot. They used to say things like, oh, where does rice come from? And he would say, oh, it comes from a golden bowl, because that's what he, th what he thought. And they'd say, where does milk come from? And he'd say, oh, it comes from a silver bowl, because that's what he thought. Whether or not that is our background, it is perfectly possible to live in that kind of misunderstanding of alienation, of separation, not knowing that we can look at any one thing and really find everything. I think sometimes about this tree that we planted out in the garden. It was um, the celebration of our 20th anniversary, which we didn't do in February because February in Massachusetts is not a great time to have a party, but we did in the summer. And uh, we decided that part of this ceremony of celebration was going to be the planting of a tree. So we got some of the younger people who sit here to plant the tree. Now I think about going out and looking at the tree in one way, we can see that tree as an entity, 
as something solid, something separate. It's an object. That's just the tree. But that tree is also nurtured by this soil and is affected by the quality of the air and the sun. It's affected by the wind. I think about the people, the young people who planted the tree, who had all come here for reasons of their own inspiration. And the very fact that here is here, that it exists, again, is a long chain of conditioned events. So what do we really see when we look at that tree? Maybe we can see even some of all of those connections, all of those relationships. That is loving-kindness. From the very beginning of my acquaintance with Dharma practice, which was in 1971, I used to hear teachings about the mind, like, the mind by nature is radiant and pure. The very nature of the mind, everyone's mind, your mind, my mind, all of us, the nature of the mind is radiant, it's pure. The literal translation of the Pali word is shining. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces known usually in translation as defilement that we suffer. Defilement is the typical translation of a Pali word. The word in Pali is kalesa, which more literally translated means torment of the mind. And that is a concept most of us can get behind. You know, defilement is a little mid-Victorian, and speaking of Victorian English, and uh, somewhat judgmental and pejorative. But torment of the mind we know when we are lost in a state of jealousy or anger or fear. We are tormented. That's the truth of it. There are two major understandings that can come from that illustration from the Buddha. One is that these forces are just visiting. They are, in effect, not who we really are. And the other is that we don't have to conceive of them or consider them as bad or wrong or miserable in ourselves as horrible or having them arise in our consciousness. They're visiting. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They're born out of conditions. And when we're lost in them, they are not bad and we are not bad, but they're suffering. And we are suffering. So that is a radical transformation for most of us of our view of what happens in our own minds. Sometimes I get this image of myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business. There's a knock at the door. So I go and I open the door, and there's jealousy or fear or anger or shame or guilt. That's a very long list, those defilements. One of those states. And a very common tendency I would have would be to say, welcome home, it's all yours. (laughs) It's like I forget who actually lives there. 
The other common tendency, of course, is out of anger and anguish and fear at the very arising of those states to desperately try to shut the door, to make them go away. But that doesn't seem to work either because then they come in the window or they come down the chimney or somehow they announce their arrival. A good deal of meditation practice is actually about those two things. It's coming to see for ourselves with our own personal and direct vision who actually lives here. What is the nature of the mind? And because those visiting forces visit a lot sometimes, learning how to work with them, with their visitation, with both wisdom and compassion. To see them for what they are and very gently and skillfully deal with them. So I used to hear this all of the time. The nature of the mind is pure, it's radiant. And implicit or sometimes explicit in that teaching would be the statement that within that that radiance, that purity, that natural state is love, is compassion. Uncompounded, uncontrived, sort of the natural manifestation of that quality. And I used to hear this and I used to think, no way. You know, there's a lot about this teaching I really believe and I can, I can get into, but not that. That makes no sense to me at all. Because after all, look at this world. You know, look at how people treat each other. Look at how we treat ourselves. I just don't buy it. <clears throat> that this is the natural state of the mind, is love or is compassion. And then some years ago, I did a kind of investigation or analysis of the relationship between wisdom or understanding and love and compassion. And what I saw affected me quite profoundly because what I saw was that there truly was never a time when I have understood myself more clearly, seen more directly some of the conditions that have come together for me to act in a certain way. There's never been a time when I've understood myself more clearly and had less love. And there has never been a time when I have looked at somebody else with greater insight, greater clarity, more understanding, and had less love. Never. Always my experience has been that wisdom, clear seeing, openness, awareness is a direct link to greater love and compassion. So then I began to think, well, if wisdom always brings me to this, if insight always brings me to this, and if clear seeing always brings me to this, maybe it is the natural state of the mind. And the confusion, the complication, comes from being lost in identification with all of those visitors. A great deal of the practice, in a way, is like learning how to rest not to get so entangled and embroiled and swept up in these visiting forces. And take greater rest and come back and come back and come back more and more 
into a direct connection with who we actually are. And so that's loving kindness. If we get confused and we start to think of metta as a feeling, then of course we're in great trouble because the feelingness of it is impermanent. It may not match our idea, our expectation of what it should be like. And we can get quite inhibited and constrained in feeling that or in thinking that this is not really the way I'm supposed to be. We have a friend, a teaching colleague, whose name is Kamala. His name is Kamala, and uh, she told us a great story once. She lives in Hawaii, and she was talking about going sailing with some friends in Hawaii, and she got quite seasick when she was sailing. So these friends said, well, why don't you just get off the boat and dip into the water? You'll feel much better, much less sick. But she wasn't a very good swimmer, and she didn't have a life vest. She was, she was quite reluctant to do it, but they urged her to, and several of them said, well, we'll get off the boat with you. We'll get into the water with you. So they did. And then just as she and her friends got into the water, this huge gust of wind came up and blew the boat away. <laughs> so there she was in the ocean, and her friends... I guess, trying to cheer her up, were saying things to her like, Kamala, what if this were the last moment of your life? You know, what would you want right now? Wouldn't you want greater love and greater compassion and all this fullness of of the open heart? And isn't that what you would want right now in perhaps this last moment of your life? And Kamala, who was, who was quite frightened, um, thought about it. And finally, she looked at them and she said quite emphatically, what I want right now is the boat. <laughs> and that's the truth of things sometimes. That's what we want. And there needs to be a direct understanding of the power of truthfulness and being able to acknowledge the truth of how things are with love and with compassion rather than trying to suppress the truth of how things are in some misguided attempt to pretend love and compassion. I go around to many, many places uh, teaching love and kindness. And it often surprises me how many times there's a certain response of something between squeamishness and fearfulness about the concept. That somehow there there is a kind of sickly sweet idea that we will get filled with loving kindness and somehow we will be enervated at the same time that will allow people to hurt us and abuse us, and we'll just kind of smile, so it's okay. We'll allow other people to be hurt or oppressed or abused, and we'll say, it doesn't matter, I'm full of love. 
And sometimes I reflect, actually, like what is it that we have come to, in a sense, that our idea of love, our idea of kindness has degenerated so strongly that we actually can believe it's a weakness as opposed to the tremendous strength that it is. And it is a strength because it's allied with wisdom. It's not make-believe and it's not fanciful and it's not a veneer of sentimentality that we put on top of feelings of distress. It is a vision. It's a way of seeing life that is very true, that we are in fact connected. And the Buddha once said, I think quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. You can imagine somebody just standing here in the middle of this room, just kind of throwing paint around in the air. There's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. And it actually wouldn't matter if the paint was very well chosen or quite an unfortunate choice of color. It wouldn't matter because the space itself would not grasp onto it. The space wouldn't be ruined. It wouldn't be changed. It wouldn't be marred. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. Once I was teaching in a um, museum, actually, in New York City, and a very young girl came, maybe seven years old or so, to hear the talk with, uh, imagine it was her mother, and it was actually a little hard to tell, just from looking at the situation, whether the mother had brought the child or the child had brought the mother. They were both sitting there in the room, and then I used that example, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, and, and the little girl had to leave the room for something. And then she came back in, and she raised her hand, she said, wait a minute, why is love like space? I said, oh, <laughs> well, I think it's like space because of that quality of immensity and openness and vastness. And also, I think it's like space because, in fact, it can't be destroyed. It might be covered over, it might be hidden, it might be obscured, but it actually can't be destroyed. And she looked at me and she said, you think love can't be destroyed? And I said, no. And she said, I don't think so either. <laughs> so, that's good. And this, of course, is um, the nature of the Buddhist teaching, that a capacity for love is never, ever destroyed. No matter what our personal experience has been, however uh, painful, however burdensome, however lonely, however frightened, it doesn't matter. The capacity to connect is never, ever destroyed. So this is what we connect to in the practice, is something that is, is latent. It's there. We're not trying to manufacture something out of nothing, which would be a problem. <laughs> and very, very um, laborious. But we are working to reconnect 
In some ways, it's like a practice of trust. We're learning how to trust that quality and see that it might come alive. It might be um, relevant here in this situation and there in that situation and there in that one as well. So it's a continually expansive view of what's possible for us. Many times after I wrote my uh, first book, Love and Kindness, people used to come up to me and they used to say, wow, it must be so incredible never to get angry or afraid. (laughs) And it must be so amazing just to love all beings all the time, isn't it? (gasps) And I used to say, well, (gasps) as a matter of fact, I can't honestly say that I live up to that uh, promise, but I know it's true. And I think we can know that, each one of us. We can have that quality of faith that, yes, this is true. It's possible for me too. That there is a capacity that we can uncover, we can unfold, and we can nurture. That's the practice. A great deal of the experience and the practice of loving kindness has to do with how we use our attention. It's how we place our attention. A friend of mine once uh, went to Sikkim many years ago to see this great Tibetan Lama, His Holiness the Karmapa, who was a very eminent, renowned Tibetan monk. And my friend went to see him and said that the Karmapa greeted his arrival as though it were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life, which it was not. And he didn't do that through (coughs) some kind of pomp and circumstance or grandiose gesture or something very elaborate. He did it by paying complete attention to my friend. And so he said that the experience of receiving that quality of wholehearted attention was one of being completely loved. And I was very moved by that story as well, because then I thought, well, isn't it unfortunate? It's really kind of sad that it wouldn't be that hard to pay more full attention in any moment. And how many conversations do we have where we're kind of listening and kind of thinking about the next thing we have to do, and then the thing after that. And in a way, it's like um, it's like stealing, or it's like ripping someone off, when we could actually be present. That degree of presence is like love. And where do we place our attention? What are we looking at? As I think we've mentioned, One of the uh, preliminary reflections to doing loving-kindness practice is seeing the good in someone. It's actually making the effort to place our attention on the good within ourselves or in somebody else. This can be quite a difficult practice. 
it is so much easier in terms of ourselves to reflect on and obsess about the terrible, awful mistakes we've made and the times that we have spoken when we really should have been quiet and the times we were quiet when we really should have spoken and on and on it goes. It takes a very conscious commitment to say, let me look for the good, beginning with ourselves and then, of course, with others. And it's not taught, you know, that we should um, look for the good in someone to enter a kind of diluted fog of, ooh, it's Valentine's Day, you know. Um, But to not deny the difficulty, which may be quite strong, but rather to use the looking for the good as a bridge so that when we are looking, perhaps, directly and honestly at the difficulty, it's not across the sense of a great gap of self and other, as though we really had nothing to do with one another, but almost more like with a friend, like we're standing side by side and looking. And when I was first given this teaching, I was in Burma, and Saira Upandita said to me one day, I want you to go back to your room, and as you're reflecting on these various categories of beings, I want you to look for the good. And I thought, I don't want to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. You know, they just kind of go around looking for the good in everybody. I don't even like people who are like that, you know, with their heads in the clouds. And it's really, it's so stupid. Um, But I was, as I'm fond of saying, I was in Burma. I was far from home. Um, I was in a monastery and in a very classical Asian teacher-student relationship where uh, the teacher suggests you do something and you don't say, I don't feel like it. (laughs) I don't think it's a good idea. So I did it. And I was absolutely amazed because it actually worked. And it worked in exactly the way they said it would work. Not that I entered this fog of delusion and just thought, oh, everything's perfect and everyone's perfect and it doesn't matter. But it broke down that sense of immense separation. So that I felt that kind of linking from which place I could look at all of the difficulty. We also see the role of attention or awareness very much in the practice as we begin to expand it. Now tomorrow we're going to start to work with the neutral person, which is a very interesting time in the practice. A neutral person is somebody that we don't strongly like or dislike. And often in the context of intensive retreat like this, we suggest you try to find somebody here who you have not yet judged. (laughs) And haven't decided that you like or dislike. Now sometimes what people find is that there is just nobody (laughs) that can serve as a neutral person because we have certainly the habit of judging. 
And sometimes what people find is that there are a lot of neutral people in their lives, either here or elsewhere, because rather than looking at people, rather than having a fullness of attention, not just people, but beings, a fullness of attention toward life forms, we overlook them, or we look through them, or we look around them, or we just don't care. And that's shocking. But an amazing thing happens just from paying attention to someone, just from holding them in your heart, just from wishing them well. You may not, you probably don't know their story, their particular history, and you may not even know their name. And they haven't done anything in particular to deserve your loving care. But it doesn't matter. Simply because they exist, you are paying attention to them. And the most amazing thing happens. Once I was teaching here one February, I met to retreat. A friend of mine was sitting the retreat. And I next saw her in the summer in New Mexico, where I was again teaching a retreat. And she came up to me in New Mexico and she said, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. <laughs> and I said, really? <laughs> That's very interesting. <laughs> and she said, no, no, not romantically. He was my neutral person during the retreat. And I just, you know, I thought about him so much. And then the next time I went into the store, and it was like, I just really cared about him. And, you know, and, and I, he's still, he's like my meta object. And, you know, I just, I wish him well and I pray for him. And, um, and it's so beautiful, really, because it's based on nothing. You know, no particular favor that's done for us, nothing we owe, not even a challenge, you know, of um, enmity or fear. Just because someone exists and we pay attention to them what we find is that we do care for them. This is the capacity for the heart, of the heart. And it's not contrived. It's not make-believe. Some of the most charming stories of intensive retreat happen around the neutral person. And again, it's not necessarily that one will have great waves of loving feeling in the actual formal practice. And sometimes people have complained to me that in retreat that they don't feel anything at all for their neutral person. And then maybe I'll get a note the next day or the day after saying, my neutral person didn't come to breakfast. Can you go check on them? <laughs> and I'll think, well, maybe they slept late. You know, like, give them a break. <laughs> But actually, if we pay attention, we will care, if we pay attention in the right way. And it's so amazing, it's so beautiful that that is the capacity that we have. It really works. And as an extension of that, we ultimately offer this sphere, this boundless caring, this sense of connection to all beings everywhere without distinction, without exception. Not just those that we are in a particular relationship with, 
not just those that we care about in a certain way. Many um, years ago, I was teaching a loving-kindness retreat in Europe, and this woman came to me and she said the most remarkable thing. She said she'd had a very difficult year, like a lot of troubles and loss and sorrow and challenges, really a very, very hard year. And the one thought that kept her going in that year was the thought that somewhere in the world somebody was offering loving-kindness to all beings everywhere, and that she was a being. And that somewhere in the world, somebody was including her rather than overlooking her or forgetting her. And for no special reason, not because she had done something so great, just because she was, she was alive, she existed. Somewhere in the world, somebody was caring about her enough to include her in that field of well-wishing. It's so amazing, isn't it? That, in fact, that's true. We could be receiving that energy at any time because there are such people in the world who, out of their own personal dedication to goodness, are including all of us in their prayers or well-wishing. And of course, not only can we be receiving it, we can be offering it at any time. I just sent a copy of uh, the second book that I wrote to a woman who wrote me a letter, who was also having a very hard time. And um, so I sent her a copy of the book, and she just called me to thank me. And the whole first part of the message was, I know I don't deserve it, and you know I can't believe you did it, and I really, really, really don't deserve it. And the whole second part of the message was, but I am a sentient being. Maybe I do deserve it. <laughs> wow, that's great. And so that's the linkage. It's, it's completely impersonal in a way. And we begin by embracing all aspects of ourselves in just that same light. The parts that we normally keep hidden and we don't like and are distressing and all of those defilements that come to visit so often, as well as opening to the good and what is possible for us in our capacity to love. We embrace it all and understand that our lives actually are of one piece. When um, recently Joseph and I and some friends were in Los Angeles and we went to uh, an art exhibit of Vincent van Gogh, and it was so uh, intense and powerful because the paintings were so varied. So many of them were Uh, so filled with light and they were so tender and about renewal it seemed and and so much openness and so many of them expressed so much pain and they were so gloomy. And I kept thinking, what can embrace all of this? 
what can be big enough to take in all of those beautiful moments of beginning and generation and regeneration and all that light and can also take in all of that pain. And it's clear, really, that it needs to be the power of love that is big enough, that can take in all of those different aspects of our being. So it's a view. It's a way of envisioning ourselves. It's a way of envisioning our lives. It's a way of understanding. The Buddha said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and the first indication of the rising sun, so is right view the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. If you don't have any healing, any great feeling in your practice, it doesn't matter. Our view, which is of this vast sense of interconnection, gives rise to our intention. It's the saying of the phrase. That's the offering of our heart space in inclusion rather than exclusion. And that is the arena of this transformation is in the realm of intention. It's the motivations that guide our actions. One of my very favorite Metta stories has to do with um, this time I was teaching in Oakland, uh, not this past January, but a year ago. I was teaching a non-residential metta retreat, which is one of my favorite things to do, actually, because especially in urban settings, uh, when I do that, because everyone has to do walking meditation on the streets. And it's very um, rich (laughs) and varied. So there we were in Oakland. We're across the street from the Amtrak station, and a lot of people were doing walking meditation on the train platform. And um, we're in this big auditorium, and uh, after one walking meditation, this woman came back into the auditorium and told me the story. She said, well, I was doing walking meditation on the train platform and doing the loving kindness, and I began berating myself because I wasn't feeling anything. And I kept thinking, I'm not doing it right. I'm doing a terrible job, and nothing, ha- nothing is happening, and... It's so awful, and uh, you know I'm so bad. And, and then a train pulled into the station, and a man got off the train onto the platform. So she began directing the love and kindness phrases to him. And then she began thinking, I don't really like him. You know, I don't like the way he looks so much. He looks really uptight and rigid, and you know, and he's wearing that suit or whatever it is. And you know, I don't, I don't really like him very much. And then she really began berating herself, and she said, oh, this is horrible. You know, here I am, supposed to be doing loving-kindness practice, and, you know, I'm judging again, and, you know, I'm saying I don't like him, and I'm doing this all wrong, and this is so horrible, and I can't do it right. And, And then the man came over to her, and he said, I've never done anything like this before in my life, and I feel really strange doing it, but I'd like to ask you to pray for me. 
He said, there's just something about you that you seem to have a really loving energy and I'm going into this very difficult situation in my life and I would feel really good just, just thinking that you're praying for me. So, <laughs> then she came back in <laughs> into the auditorium and she told us the story and she said, you know, it's amazing because he got me twice, <laughs> you know. It's like first I was judging myself for feeling nothing. Then I was judging myself for judging him. But clearly she was doing it right. And the truth is, really, if we're doing it at all, we're doing it right. Because the power of transformation is in channeling that capacity of the heart. It's in bringing it forth. It's in the intention that is expressed through the phrases. The phrases are the expression of the aiming of the heart. And that is our work. If we're doing that, we're doing it right. So I'd like to close with a poem, also from the poet Joseph read from the other night, Naomi Shihab Nye, who is a Palestinian-American poet, And the poem, I think, points to the fact that, again, we don't have to judge our experiences so much because with the the power of our view and understanding, we can take even, even difficult and painful experiences and transform them into the field of love and kindness. The poem is called Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, Passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Let's sit together for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.